Luke chapter number 7 is where we're at. Luke 7. We've been in a series that I've entitled Refocus, and I hope it's been a help and a blessing to you. We've been trying to uh, kind of strip away all of the, the myths and the traditions and the prejudices and things surrounding Jesus and looking at the accounts and the Gospels of who Jesus is, uh, what he has done, what his uh, priorities was, what he uh, sought to accomplish. And so with that, hopefully we're getting a clear view of what is important to him. Uh, last week, uh, Jesus concluded his great sermon uh, where we get the, the Beatitudes, blessed be, the, be ye. Uh, he concluded it by giving, I called it a parable. It's not necessarily a parable, uh, maybe an object lesson or however you want to refer to it, about the two men who built uh, two different houses. One, they founded upon the rock, the other on the sand. And of course, you look at the passage and what Jesus is teaching from that. The rock is the word of God. The house is the lives that we build. And if we build our lives upon the words and the principles found within God's word, then we're going to be able to endure all of the storms that come through life because God's word is timeless. It is steadfast. It is firm. It is something that we can count on and depend on. It's proven. It has never failed. But if we build our lives upon our own desires, if we follow our heart, if we go uh, by man's philosophies and the ever-changing uh, uh, fads and fashions of this world, then we're building on sinking sand and our lives are going to crumble. And so we need to build our lives on the Word of God. And uh, today we're going to uh, be basically picking up where we left off after Jesus preaches this uh, this message to this group here. He's going to go back to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was a, uh, a village on the, the shores of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and it was where Jesus set up kind of his uh, his headquarters for his Galilean ministry, okay? So a lot of the miracles that we find written and recorded within Scripture occurred in this area. A lot of the miracles that we are most familiar with and even uh, the teachings and the different things that Jesus did, they were uh, concentrated around this area. Lots was going on here. Jesus spent a lot of time here. The people were very familiar with him here. And so in today's passage that we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to find something that would have been a very common occurrence. Somebody comes to Jesus with a problem looking for help. Now that probably happened multiple times a day, right? There were multitudes that followed Jesus. There were crowds that thronged him. There were times that he didn't even uh, have enough uh, time or space to rest, to even get a bite to eat. There were times that he was uh, wore out and wearied because there were always people around him wanting something, needing something, asking something of him. So that would have been a very common occurrence for him. But in this, we find that there is something that is unusual, and I'm sure that's why it's recorded. The, the Bible only kind of is the, the highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. Uh, it is said, uh, I believe it's John that says, if he would have recorded everything that Jesus said and did, that the world itself could not contain the volumes that would be written. So that lets us know that we're just getting the highlight reel. And so there was a reason why this was recorded for us here. And so through this account, we're going to learn a valuable and foundational truth about Christ and about our relationship with him. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, and we'll read from uh, verse number 1. 
It says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom uh, he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned about him, turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we have in your word and uh, in your house and amongst your people. And we just pray, Lord, ask you that you would uh, work in this service today. Do that which is needed in the hearts and lives of each person here. I pray that you give me clarity of mind and of speech. Help me to say the things that are needful and, and accurate and true. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would help your people be drawn closer to you. I pray that you would align them with your with your word and with your heart, Lord. And I pray if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would call upon you and trust you as their Savior before it's everlasting too late. And Lord, we do thank you once again for all that you do. And we pray in Jesus' name and amen. So in this passage, we see a centurion. Now, a centurion would have been a Roman soldier, and he would have been uh, in charge or in authority over about 100 different soldiers. Okay, and so they were uh, arranged in a hierarchy, if you will. So you'd have uh, all of the common soldiers, a centurion over him, and then there would be uh, six companies of these in a legion. So six centurions over a legion, and then they would have a head over the. We understand how how that would work, right? And so this centurion was a Roman, and he was in charge over the military in a region in Galilee that belonged to the Jews. So the Romans were occupying. And so we kind of get an idea of what's going on here. The Jews didn't like the Romans being there. Most of the time, the Romans weren't too pleased with being there with the Jews. It's somewhat similar to what we looked at in Sunday school with the Samaritans, right? Seems like the Jews didn't get along with a lot of people. But anyway, this was a Roman centurion, and he had a servant that was near to death. And whenever he heard about Jesus, he sent to Jesus for help, and he received the help that he desired. Simple story. Case closed, right? We quit and go home. It wasn't that simple, though, was it? Uh, even though I made it sound pretty straightforward, uh, that wouldn't make it all that special, and that wouldn't be a reason to include it in Scripture. But let me ask you this question. We've already established that there was a division between the Romans and between the Jews, between the centurions, the occupying force, and the people that existed there. And so if you were... In that day, while Jesus was ministering, while he was working, while he was doing miracles, and you were an outsider, you were one of the ones that 
did not necessarily qualify, that didn't see yourself as Jesus's group, okay? And you had a problem and you wanted to get Jesus's attention, how would you go about it? What would be the criteria that you would put forth? How would you go about getting Jesus' attention? What would make you stand out amongst all the multitudes, all of the people that were thronging Jesus so that he would hear your plea, so that he would get, uh, so that you would get from him what you were desiring? Praise the Lord. I think uh, in the first place, I, I so much appreciate the centurion's uh, declaration mm -hmm. that he is not worthy mm -hmm. to be the one that Christ will come to his own. Mm -hmm. He is simply recognized his nothingness. Yep. Nothingness. Who is the criteria for us to get Christ mm -hmm. in our lives? Look at the life of Brian Bartimaeus also, mm -hmm. sitting by those side, trying to get attention for healing. To become so I can see. Mm -hmm. And it was he shouted that Jesus he was asking what is going around. He could hear sound. What is going around? He said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing this way. And mm -hmm. Jesus, that son of David, mm -hmm. have mercy on me. And he shouted him down. The more mm -hmm. he shouted down, the more he was crying. He mm -hmm. shouted until mm -hmm. he caught Christ's attention. These are two scenarios. Yeah. But going back to the central servant. The first criteria for us to accept Christ, for Christ to mm -hmm. put our life, is accepting our nothingness. Mm -hmm. Our nothingness. Yeah. So we're going to get to that here in just a minute. But as we're looking at this here, that's not normally what we're going to default to. What he's bringing out is a very, very real point, and he's, he's getting ahead of me. That's why I've... Oh, sorry. That's why I, he's getting ahead of me just a little bit. Sorry, that's why sorry, so we'll get here in just a minute, okay? Okay, fine. But... Uh, not being rude, but yeah. So we're going to get to what he was saying here in a minute. But I challenge you in this that that is not our default. That's not what we usually rely on. And so whenever we look at this, if we're trying to get someone's attention, if we're trying to get them to do something for us, we are trying to convince them that we're worthy. Right? We're trying to convince them that we are worthy. And we're going to see in this passage that some of the very same things that's going on in this passage is what we still default to to this day. This is the reasoning that we come back to to this day. But the thought that I want to look at today is how do you impress God? Have you ever thought of that? How do I impress God? And I think a lot of people live their lives hoping to impress Him, of seeking to impress Him, to do something that's going to stand out Somehow you're going to prove yourself to be valuable. Somehow you're going to prove yourself to be worthy. And just saying it doesn't feel right. Anyone with me? That I would feel worthy before God because we know that we are unworthy. But just because we know that doesn't mean that we don't fall back into that way of thinking. How often do we try to appear worthy? How often do we try to impress God? And so we're going to look here because we, we rely on the same things the men in this passage do because the Bible says, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there is no new thing under the sun, right? We go in cycles. Everything is, and that's why the Bible is so relatable because human nature doesn't change. The things that they did back then are the things that we do today, maybe in a little slight different manner. It might look a little bit different, but we still do the same things at its core. And so the first thing that I want to look at here 
that these men relied on to try to get God's attention, to try to get Jesus' attention, is they thought that he would be impressed by a religious facade. Okay? They thought he'd be impressed by a religious facade because this Roman centurion knew that the Jews didn't like the Romans. They knew especially the religious leaders amongst the Jews didn't like the Romans. And so it only made sense to this Roman centurion that Jesus, being supposedly a religious leader, is going to despise him. So how can I get his attention? How is it that I can somehow get him to warm up to me a little bit? A Roman, how am I going to get him to entertain the idea of helping me? And so he hatches this plan. He hatches this idea if I send a Jewish delegation. If I get the religious elders from around me to go to Jesus on my behalf, then maybe he will hear me. Right? Did you all catch that as we were going through this? And so he sends a delegation of religious leaders. He puts something between him and God that he thinks is going to impress God or get God's attention. That's a little different way of looking at it, right? You all understand what a facade is. Something that is built on something else to make it look better. Now, I've given this illustration before, so for anyone who's heard it, pardon me, but some of you haven't. But whenever Les and I, we hadn't been married very long, we were going on a holiday. We were going up into ski country. And there was a hotel that I booked ahead of time. Went online, saw the pictures, everything looked great. It was this uh, mountain lodge. It had a, a log outside, you know, it looked like this huge log uh, lodge. And I said, oh, this is going to be great. This is a beautiful place. And we pull up in front of it. And sure enough, it was like the picture. Until we started looking down the sides, we started looking around and said, there's something not quite right with this. And it was like a 1940s or 1950s motel that they just came and set out like two meters from the front of it and built a facade on the front of it. All of the log entryway and all that, that was fake. It was just built on the front of a really old, rundown, grubby-looking motel. And so we pulled the, we, we came into the, past the little facade, we could still see the original layer behind it, open up the door, it still has the carpet from the 70s, along with the dirt from the 70s. And it was filthy, it was nasty, but what they were doing is they said, we know that what we have is not acceptable, is not worthy, that no one's going to book this online, so we've got to find a way to make this prettier. We've got to find a way to make this look better so we can sucker people into coming and staying here. And it worked, I was one of the suckers, okay? And so it's given me a good story for, you know, 15 years now. But they built a facade to try to get people's attention. And this is what this Roman centurion was doing. He says, I know that if I just come as myself, that that's not going to be good enough. And so I need to have a religious facade. I need to have something between me and God to try to impress him. And so what that looks like for us today is that we put on all sorts of religious pretense. We can go to church. We can go through the formalities. We have ceremonies. We have rituals. We have... Uh, People even change the way that they speak and they start engaging in like this Christianese type of language, right? We, uh, we are able to go through all of these motions and put on this religious trappings, this facade for ourselves, thinking that somehow that God is going to be pleased with that, that somehow he's going to be impressed by our religiosity. And it only goes about surface deep, but inside we find that there's nothing different about us. 
that it is just something that we stack on top, thinking that somehow it's going to weight the balance in our favor, that somehow that is going to impress God. And so there's all sorts of religious formalities that we just pile on, all these different things that we do, hoping that it is going to weight things in our favor. We find that uh, Jesus talked to the, the Pharisees and he called them uh, whited sepulchers. A sepulcher was a grave. Whenever he's talking about it being a whited sepulcher, it was painted up, it was decorated, it was whitewashed, it would have looked attractive on the outside, but inward it was full of dead men's bones, right? He says you can dress up the outside, you can put on a facade, but inside it's still filth, and God wasn't impressed by that. John the Baptist went a little bit further, and he called them a generation of vipers. Boy, that would be offensive, wouldn't it? He called them a generation of vipers, and what he meant by that we know that the Bible tells us that the serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field. You know how most people end up getting injured by serpents, by snakes? They're hidden. They blend in. They don't see the danger. They don't understand the harm that's going to be caused until it's too late. He says, you all are a generation of vipers. You are a hidden danger. You are deadly poison, but it is not perceptible to the outside. You have camouflaged it well. And how did they camouflage it? Through all of their religious pretense. And so he says that what's going on behind the scenes is not attractive whatsoever, but boy, you have really painted it up nicely, right? And see, this is what we end up trying to do. If we're not careful, even as Christians, we think if we just engage in enough religious works, if we just do enough of these ceremonies and these rituals, if we go through enough of this, that somehow God is going to be impressed with that. And he's going to look down and say, boy, they're really performing well, like we're a bunch of trained monkeys, right? And whenever we see God that way, do we really think that God's that big of a fool? That sounds almost blasphemous to say, doesn't it? But that is what we are assuming if we think that we can fool God. If we think that we can put on religious pretense, if we can just go through the motions and somehow it's going to impress him. Just as an example of how this works, how often have you seen people suddenly get religious when disaster strikes? How many times have you seen people suddenly get religious whenever their marriage is falling apart, whenever they're having trouble with their children, whenever they get a bad diagnosis, whenever there's trouble with their money, whenever their job's not going well, all of a sudden then they get religious. And they think that if, if I go to church, if I give some money, if I say some prayers, if I go through all of these things, that somehow that's going to fool God and I'm going to get his favor. I'm going to impress him. And somehow, because of these little trinket things that I do, that I'll be able to get God's attention, that he is going to be accepting of me, that he is going to, uh, to, to do what I would have him to do. It's transactional, right? I do this, God does that. But that's not the way that God works. You know what works that way? Man's religion, idolatry. You look at all the man-constructed religions there are around the world, and that is the way that it functions, that somehow that I've got to put on this religious facade, I've got to go through all these motions, I've got to do all these things, and in doing so, God is going to do what I want him to do. And we're leveraging God's power through our actions. And that is not the way it works. And God is not impressed by it. And so whenever they came to Jesus, this religious delegation, they came to Jesus, he wasn't like, oh, good. 
It's the religious leaders. It's the guys from the synagogue. They've done really well. I've got to do whatever they want me to do. It's not the way that God ever works. Honestly, if our religious activities impressed God, then what need would there have been for Jesus to come to the cross? What need would there have been for any of the things that he's done if he was so easily satisfied by hollow formalities? But he is not he is not that easily fooled. He's not that easily impressed. And so they thought their religious deeds would impress Jesus. They didn't. The second thing that we find here is they thought that God would be impressed by their righteous actions. And as we follow these guys, I know it was the centurion that sent this religious delegation. But what was it that they said whenever they came to Jesus? You look at verse number four. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom should do this. They started bragging about this centurion, even though that most of the time the Jews didn't like the centurions, the centurions didn't like the Jews, that they came to him and they said, this guy's different, right? This is one of the good ones. He's not like the rest of the Romans. In fact, he loves our nation. He's built for us a synagogue. Look at all of his great works. He doesn't do what they do. He does all of these good things. Jesus, surely you're impressed by this. Surely you see that this man is worthy. And obviously we find that God is not impressed by our religious deeds, our righteous deeds, I mean. In our minds, we think if we tally up our goodness, it's almost this idea of the balance scale, right? Put my good works versus my bad works, and that's going to impress God, right? We think if we tally up all of our religious activities and all of our righteous activities, that somehow it's going to impress God. And this is different than what we were looking at earlier with the religion. But this is the morality. This is the good deeds. This is going about and uh, feeding the poor and donating to the, the, the hungry and doing all and donating to the, the poor and feeding the hungry. There you go. Get it right the way, right? This is going about, I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't ever killed anyone. I haven't robbed anyone. Instead, look at all of the good deeds that I have done. Look at all of the, the righteous acts that I have completed. Surely that is going to impress God, but it doesn't. We think it's the, the bad that we don't do or the people that we're better than or all the effort that we've put forth. Uh, all the commands that we've kept, the way that we've inconvenienced ourselves. And as we bring all these things up before God, say, surely you'll be pleased. Surely you'll be impressed. God, we deserve to have our prayers answered. Do we ever have that kind of entitlement with God? After all I've done, God, you let this happen to me. After all I've done, God, surely you can answer this prayer. Have you ever uttered those kind of things? Or heard people who have? We do. We have this entitlement. We think that because of our righteous acts, 
that somehow it's going to impress God and it's going to get God to work in our favor. It's going to get God to do what we want him to do. Somehow he's going to uh, heap up praise and rewards upon us. He's going to answer our prayers. He's going to better our situation because we have been religious, because we have been righteous. And God is not impressed with either of those. But what was it that did impress Jesus? We find something amazing in this passage because whenever this man has sent this delegation, they're coming and they're on their way. The Roman centurion sees them coming toward him. I believe they see him coming. And he may be surprised that it worked. I don't know. But he says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman. No Jew will enter in under my roof. They would be considered uh, unclean if they did. And he started humbling himself. And he says, I am not worthy, but I am aware of how authority and power works. He says, I am a man given under authority. And if I say to someone, go, they go, they obey. And I know that you have greater power, you have greater authority than what I do. And if you'll just say the word, you don't have to come under my roof. If you'll just say the word, it will be done because I believe you have that kind of power. I believe you have that kind of authority. And it tells us here in verse number nine, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. Now that's impressive to me because this is Jesus. This is the son of God. This is God incarnate in the flesh, okay? He knows all things. He sees all things. He's experienced. And he. And the Bible says in another place, he knows what is in the heart of man. We find places that he is uh, understanding and interpreting their thoughts as they're thinking them. And you would think that there would be nothing that could impress him. There would be nothing that he marvels at. But we find in Scripture there are two times that Jesus marvels. There's this time he marvels at the faith of this centurion. What was it impressed Jesus? His faith. By the way, the other time that he marvels is at the lack of faith of the Jews. He marvels at their unbelief. After all they've seen, after all they've been exposed to, after all that God had done for them, they still rejected him. He marveled at that. But anyway, back on track here. He was impressed by real faith. So much that he stops, he pauses, it gets his attention. He turns to the Jews that are following, and he says, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. The, one, the ones who have the scriptures that have had the close relationship with God, that should have been expecting him, that should have been the first to believe, all of those Jews were slow of heart. All of them were very cautious. All of them were slow to put their faith in Christ. But this outsider, this Gentile, this centurion, whenever he heard about Jesus, he believed. Without all the signs, without all the miracles, without all the wonders, he believed. And Jesus marveled. He says, I've not seen such great faith. He doesn't have all the benefits that the Jews did, and yet he believes. And believes to such a great extent that he says, you don't even have to be present. You don't even have to come and do any great works over this or make a big performance of it. All you have to do is speak the word, 
and he'll be healed. That's great faith, right? And so this is what impressed God. And this is the same thing for us. This is a great lesson for us to learn because for us as human beings, we have this idea that we must earn, that we must deserve, that somehow we have to get God's attention. Somehow we need to impress him. And just to bring this down to uh, an everyday level here. Have you ever found yourself thinking this way whenever you're praying? I really need an answer to this prayer. What must I do? We start getting more serious about things whenever we're wanting to hear from God, when we're wanting an answer for our prayers, whenever there's a circumstance in our lives, and we start to read our Bibles more. We're going to make sure we don't miss church. We start putting on that religious facade. We start maybe giving a little bit more in the offering. We start being a little bit more generous to charity. We start going out of our way to help other people. It's like, oh, I'm really needing something for God. And, oh, there's a car broke down alongside the road. I will help them change their tire. Surely that's going to give me brownie points with God. Anyone ever guilty of that? That way of thinking? We default to it. That's not how God works. He's not a vending machine. But whenever we have faith. And this passage illustrates so clearly what faith is. First and foremost, this man says, I am not worthy. Okay? I'm not worthy. The Jews came to Jesus saying, this man is worthy. And his first response was, I am not worthy. And that speaks volumes because for him saying, there is nothing that I have done. There is nothing that I have contributed to this. There is no way that this is owed to me. He is casting himself completely on the goodness of God. Y'all realize that? Whenever he comes to the place, he's not saying, God, look at all my righteous deeds. Look at all my good works. I deserve this. He's like, no, I don't deserve this, but I believe you are good. I believe that you love me. I believe that you're capable of taking care of this. I believe that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? I believe that. Not because of any righteousness of my own, but because of who you are. That is powerful. He is looking at Jesus and he is understanding the character of God. And he's saying, you are good. You are righteous. You are holy. It's not me. It is you. And not only is he looking at the character of God, he's also looking at the power and the ability of God. He says, I'm used to having authority. I'm used to having power. I acknowledge that yours is so much greater than mine. And so not only are you good, you are able, you are capable. And the third thing about this is he says, I don't even need you to come to my house. I don't need you to condescend down to my level. I don't need you to make it clear to me, to make it plain to me, to make it understandable to me. I don't have to see it. I don't have to understand it. I trust that you are able to do it from where you're at. That's faith. Because the way it usually works for us, it's I will believe when I see. I will believe when I understand. I will believe if you do it my way. And this man pushes all that off the table. He says, I don't have to see it. I don't have to understand it. I trust. I believe in you. I'm putting it in your hands. You're capable. You're good. You love me. It's not based on me. It's nothing that I have done. 
And Jesus stops and says, that's refreshing. That's different. And it impressed him because it is faith. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because what's the opposite of faith? It's either you'll have your faith in something. It's either your faith in God or your faith in yourself, right? Isn't that what it's what it comes down to? If you're saying my good deeds need to impress God, my religiosity needs to impress God, my faith is not in God, it's in myself. It's in my works, it's in my abilities, it's in my performance, it's in all the things that I have done. I am putting my faith in myself to get God to respond to me. And I put myself as being God and not him. He's just a puppet. And that's the way that all religion really works outside of biblical Christianity. But what impresses God is whenever we take ourselves off the throne, when we quit trusting in ourselves and our own ability, when we exalt him, when we see him high and lifted up, and whenever we put the ball in his court, whenever we say, God, it is up to you. I trust you. I depend on you. Even though I'm unworthy, I know you're good and you're able, and I'm leaving it in your hands. And it's that way with salvation, and it's that way with our Christian life. A lot of times we think, okay, I got saved. Now I've got to perform. Watch me work, God. Watch all these things that I can do. No, God says, I still want you to trust me. He says it is God that works in us to both will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the work that he is doing through us, not what we're doing for him. And so whenever we put our faith in him, we find that God responds to that. That whenever we are trusting him, when we are following him, when we're allowing him to do the work, that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Because it's no longer us, it's about him. Right? Whenever we take ourselves out of the driver's seat and put him there, we're going to go to a lot better destination. Now, I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about in life in general. God is able to do great things. He is able to work in us and through us but not as long as we are competing for place with him. And so the last thing that I want to look at here is we try to impress God by our religious facade. We try to impress God by our righteous actions. But what really impresses God is real faith. And that should cause us to be impressed by God. See how the tables have turned? We should be impressed by God. Have you ever been impressed by God? Have you ever sat in awe of God? Have you ever looked at who he is in scripture and how we we find him in the word of God, the things that he does? We just sung the song, Jesus loves me. Does that impress you? You ever look at your own life and say, I am not worthy, but he loves me? I'm not trying to impress God. That's impossible. What about me is impressive whenever he hung the stars in space, whenever he created all of the things down here? You say, well, I go to church quite often, God. The Bible says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he's in the midst. He goes to church a lot more than I do. Right? You say, well, God, I've done all these righteous works. He says, well, I'm on the cross for all the world. God, I was merciful to that guy. He needed slapped. Surely that should count for something, God. He said, I was smote. They plucked out my beard. 
They whipped me with a cat of nine tails. They hung me on the cross. They mocked me. They ridiculed me. They parted my garments. And they buried me in a borrowed tomb. Right? Is God going to be impressed by our works? And he's going to say, well, you got me on that one. Come on in. No. But what impresses God is our faith. And whenever we get our eyes off of ourselves, and when we get our eyes on Jesus, when we recognize him for who he is and for what he's done and how great that he is, we're going to be impressed by him. And as we talked about these religious deeds and uh, these righteous deeds and things, there's nothing wrong with any of that. There's nothing wrong with going to church. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible. There's nothing wrong with being generous, with giving, with uh, all these different things that we do unless we're doing them for the wrong reason. And when you get impressed with God, real fruit follows because then you're going to desire to do these things. You're not going to do it to impress God. You're going to do it because you're impressed with God. I want to go to church. I want to read the Bible because I want to learn more about him. I want to get to know him. I want to see him for who he is. And I want to see him working in my life because I'm not worthy, but he is. I can't do anything, but he can do all things. And so whenever I see him high and lifted up, whenever I get impressed by him, I can glorify him, I can praise him, and I can trust him even more. And that is what it's all about. And so if you're going through your life trying to impress God, it's not going to happen. He's the one impressive, not me. He's the one impressive, not you. And so you get your eyes on him and see him for who he is and for what he's done and stand in awe of God. And it's going to completely reinvent your life. It's going to completely change your life around because I don't do what I do to gain God's favor. I've already got God's favor because of who he is and what he's done and what I do flows out of that. And so my final thought on this as we close today All the people around this world, all the different religions that are out there, they think that their actions, their religious activities, all these things, are what's going to get God's attention, what's going to bring salvation to their souls. And that's not what's going to happen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He doesn't want you to clean your life up. He doesn't want you to give Him a bunch of religious activities and go through all these, jump through all these religious hoops and stuff. He doesn't want you to be a more moral person. He wants you to see yourself like this man saw himself as unworthy and in need of him and put your faith and trust in him alone to save your soul, to forgive your sins, and to ensure your eternity. And then he will become your God. You will become his child. Then you will have eternal life. Your salvation will be sure. Your eternity will be settled. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is and what he has done. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Could you imagine if we could impress God by our works and the bragging that we would do? To be honest with you, if we got to heaven by our works, I wouldn't want to go to heaven. You know why? Because I'd have to sit there and listen for all eternity about how you got there. Let me tell you about the time I did this. No, I don't want to hear about you. I want to hear about him, right? If you could be saved by your works, if you could be saved by your religion, there would be no need for Jesus to come. 
There would have been no need for Jesus to die. There would have been no need for the cross. There would have been no need for any of that because you would be saving yourself. But Jesus came that we could have life and have it more abundantly through him. God is impressive. God is marvelous. And I don't live to impress him. I live for him because he's impressed me. And that is my challenge for you today. Don't try to impress God. Be impressed by God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for this account of this man, Lord. And uh, we haven't sought to uh, to look on him begrudgingly. We're, we were uh, seeing him as an example, Lord, of the, the faith that he had and how you marveled at it. Lord, help us, Lord, to quit trying to impress you and get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on you. Help us to truly marvel at you. Help us to be impressed by you, Lord, and help us put our faith in you alone, not in ourselves, not in our actions, not in our religion, but Lord, help us to put our faith in you and nothing else. If there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, if they've never put their faith and trust in you, if they're trusting anything besides you, Lord, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would realize, Lord, they're, they're never going to impress you, and instead that they would put their faith and trust in you alone for salvation of their soul and for assurance of eternity. We thank you so much for all you do, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.